Well, let's look in our psalm tonight, Psalm 112, that we have looked at for the last two or three weeks. Um, we'll finish tonight, I promise. We flip over there. If this is your first Wednesday night with us since we've started this a few weeks ago, we're doing a summer in Psalms. All summer long, we'll be covering different Psalms. I've had the last three weeks with you. Uh, next Wednesday night, we've asked B.J. Odie to share a psalm with us. B.J. is our college and career minister, and um, this is his last, he's actually spending his last few weeks with us. In, in mid-August, B.J. will be leaving us, going uh, to seminary in St. Louis, so we wanted B.J. to share in this context. I'll, each Wednesday night, B.J. is usually sharing at a point meeting for uh, career people that's off campus. He's, he's doing that tonight. But he'll be with us next Wednesday night to share a psalm. So we look forward to hearing from B.J. next Wednesday night. Psalm 112. Let's read the psalm again and then we'll pick up about halfway down. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his, delight, in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look, on, look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Uh, I forgot to tell you something, too. And this, I just want to... Uh, give you fair warning um, in a couple of, not this Sunday but next Sunday I'll be preaching that morning and I had known that I would be preaching uh, on that Sunday June the 30th and so I, I decided what text I would preach on and when I preach on Sunday mornings I, uh, I flip flop from the Old to the New Testament last time I preached I preached in the New Testament so I planned all along on the Sunday the June the 30th I'm going to preach in the, in the Old Testament so I've been preparing this text, and uh, lo and behold, Jimmy throws a curve, and he has that privilege. He's the senior pastor. He switches right here in the summer and goes to the book of Job, which blows my sermon for next Sunday. So I, I, I've had to switch gears, and uh, I'm pretty busy right now, so I'm going to preach Psalm 112 next Sunday. So you're going to hear some, some of this again, and hopefully I'll do a little bit better job than I've, because I, you, know, it's, you get to practice a little bit more. So I'll be preaching... And, and you know I can't spend as much time as I've spent the last three Wednesday nights in this psalm, so I've got to summarize some issues in psalms. So fair warning, a week from Sunday I'm going to preach a sermon out of Psalm 112. So I, and I felt like I need to tell you that like I've cheated on an exam or something. I don't know what, what that is about me, but maybe there's, if you're a psychologist you can help me why I wrestle with that kind of thing. But Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I promise it'll be within the time limit. 30, 40 minutes, we'll be out of there. Okay. <laughs> All right, look, guys, I want to go back and cover something in verse 4 that I didn't get to spend 
uh, ample time on last Wednesday night. So go back and look at verse 4, and then we're going to skip verse 5 and because we already discussed that. But I do want to share a little bit more out of verse 4 before we finish the rest of the chapter. Now, even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. If you remembered last Wednesday night, I kind of cut that verse in half, and I said, here's what I think I, we see here in this in verse 4. Two things. The first half, we see the salvation of the upright or the righteous. The second half, we see the, the, uh, the blessings or the security. I see for the, oh no, not the security, but the, uh, the attributes are the character of the righteous. Now that's what I want to brush on again tonight before we go ahead. Notice in verse 4, the upright man is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Now remember what I referred you to last Wednesday night? Look back again in chapter 111, the, the previous chapter, and look in verse 4. Look what you see. Look at this in Psalm 111, verse 4. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord, the Lord is the righteous one, the one who can do nothing but good, nothing but right. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Now, the point I made last Wednesday night was this. Guys, when God makes a man upright, He makes him like Himself. God is in, in this process and is committed to making us like Himself. And that is the great doctrine of sanctification. Now, I mentioned to you last Wednesday night that that is good news for us, guys. We don't have to approach this issue of being gracious and compassionate and righteous like it's a, a discipline that we have to learn and, and grit our teeth and grind out. That's, that's the wrong approach to this issue. Guys, God is just as committed to our sanctification as He is or was to our regeneration. He is busy doing that. Sanctification is a work of grace. Now, that has tremendous ramifications for us. Now, let me tell you, um, let me illustrate it. This is what I didn't have time, I didn't think, last week to do to illustrate this. About 25 years ago, uh, I walked in to a fire station at 21 years of age. Just a young kid, lived a sheltered life, worked in a, lived, raised in a Christian home, uh, worked in my father's business in high school and as a young man and uh, just shelter from the world, as we would say. Walked into that fire station that day, and I, you know, I, I mean, I was young, looked sharp. You can imagine. Uh, <laughs> shirt was pressed, crease in my slack. My shoes were shiny. I mean, there was nothing. I mean, I, my uniform was perfect. You know, you couldn't find any fault in. I mean, I was regulation. Walked in that fire station. Uh, but I was a little bit nervous, you know. Uh, Greg's a firefighter, and he remembers these days. You, you're the probie, the new kid on the block, the rookie, and you, you, know, you get exposed to all kind of stuff. But the, and 24 hours later, I walked out of that fire station after my first tour of duty. Uh, my shirt was pressed. My slacks were still <laughs> creased. <laughs> my shoes were shiny. But I was uh, scared to death. I went home. And I remember before I went back my next shift, I uh, got in my, on my knees in my bedroom and I, I prayed something like this, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. 
I had just been, exp- you know, I'm looking over here. We, uh, uh, Jack, retired firefighter, he, he relates to this. Uh, anyway, I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't know that if I can do this or not. I, I, have, I have never been exposed to that kind of language. I, it, I, it was, I knew I was in for something that I, I just didn't know if I was prepared to do. And so I, I cast myself on the Lord that night and I pleaded grace. Now, I didn't know it at that time. But what I was doing was exactly what I needed to be doing. You see, I couldn't do it. I could not. How do you be, how do you be uh, gracious to a man who curses the Lord that you love? How, how are you compassionate to, um, to a person who uh, blasphemes God? How do you be compassionate to a man who's losing, you know, losing his wife or his family? And you, you want to tell him, it's good enough for you the way you're living. No wonder she's leaving you. You know, how do you be compassionate to that kind of person? How, how do you be gracious? You just can't do it on your own, guys. And I, I pled that night that God would help me live for Christ in those fire stations. And, and, and through His grace, for the next 12 years, I spent 12, almost 12 years in those fire stations, and God was gracious. He taught me how to emulate Christ in, this, in the world. So, uh, guys, in a sense, if, for those of you who are living out there, I, I, I'm, once again, I'm in that sheltered world around here at Grace of Anne. I, my, you know, my worst struggle is Jim Umloff. You know, he says some crazy <laughs> things once in a while. You know, I'm living in a pretty sheltered world. Uh, but I, I can, uh, I'm sympathetic to what you guys are facing out there because I've, I've been there and done that. But my point is, guys, we must understand that this comes from the grace, only by the grace of God can we be gracious and compassionate and generous. We don't feel like it. We don't have it within us on our own. But resident within us is the Holy Spirit of God. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to every one of us who are in Jesus Christ. So that's what I wanted to go back and touch on verse uh, verse 4. Now, 5 and 6, we've, we've already talked about that. Let's skip ahead now and let's look in verses 7 and 8. Psalm 112, 7 and 8. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. I call this, these two verses the security of the upright or the security of the believer. Now, guys, look at these verses again that we just read. Just look at him for a minute. Look down at your Bible. And, and I, here's a question. What can we assume from these verses? What, can, what assumption can we make from the text here about the upright or the righteous? Confident. What? Yes, but there's something else. Something, is, something is inevitably is going to happen in, in the life of the upright. Yes, the upright, the righteous are not immune to suffering. We will experience suffering. We will experience bad news. Look in verse 6. He will never be shaken. He will have no fear of bad news. Verse 8. His heart is secure. But the, the unique thing about the upright man is that he or she possesses a unique perspective on suffering. That's the difference. As, as Rick has already alluded to, uh, uh, several, let's see, this is 
June. In April, uh, Brian came home for a few days. It was his birthday. You know, the kids come home and they get that age, they come home for their money. (laughs) So he came home for his birthday. And, um, and, you know, Jimmy kind of alluded to this Sunday in the sermon about fathers. And and I hardly agree with him. If you're a father, you can associate with this. But especially when the kids get older, they come home for two reasons. Money from dad and they miss their mom. (laughs) And so Brian came home for a few days. And we, uh, while he was home, we golfed together and, we were out on the golf course. Now, i got to be truthful about this because there's some golfers in here. But um, We were on the golf course, and I teed up, and I hit this long, I mean, straight down the fairway, 300-yard drive. Is that, is that okay, Mike? <laughs> Stretch that too much? Anyway, we, we were golfing. I hit this long drive, and, so, and we were walking that day. We were walking on the golf course, and uh, we were you know, in some good conversation. And while we were walking up to the next ball, Brian said, you know, Dad, he was, he was referring to his grandfathers. Both Carl's dad and my dad are suffering some physically. And Brian's question was, Dad, why does, it, why does a good man like Pop have to suffer like that? And uh, I, I told Brian that day on the golf course, three reasons why the upright suffer. One of the reasons that we suffer is, is just common sufferings. Uh, and I call this the indirect consequences of the fall. We, we guys, we just live in a fallen world, and we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Common sufferings, everyday sufferings. It, it's uh, Catherine, is it Catherine? Catherine not necessarily is under the discipline of God. It could be she has cancer because she, we live in a fallen world. Common sufferings. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8 that all creation groans. And he goes on to say that we groan for, we ache for the redemption of the body. Uh, he says, I think in the text, he says we ache inwardly for the, to, for the redemption of the body, the physical body. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't just ache inwardly sometimes. I ache outwardly sometimes. Do you ever have any aches and pains? We ache. We groan for the redemption of the body. So we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Common sufferings. Another reason we suffer is because of the, the direct consequences of sin. Ladies and gentlemen, I've already mentioned this to you, but sin is costly. It has tremendous health ramifications. Some of our suffering is the consequences of sin. And by the way, the writer of Hebrews says that if you're... If you're an upright or righteous man, you're in Christ, the Father, what? Disciplines those He loves. So some of our suffering is the discipline of God because we've sinned and we're under the Father's discipline. But there's another reason we suffer. And this one has to do with sanctification. Some of our suffering is just so that we will become sanctified. Read Philippians chapter 2. The Father is committed to maturing us, to growing us up. And sometimes sufferings come because of uh, we're in the process of sanctification. But whether it's any one of those three, and I think that's uh, all of the reasons, but whether it's any one of those three, in all of these instances, in all of these examples, the suffering, in all of these sufferings, whether we suffer because of the just common sufferings or we're, we're uh, the consequences of sin or we're under sancti- being sanctified, whether it's any of those, in all of those, we can rest assured God is at work. He never abandons us as His people. Now, this is the confidence, this is the security of the upright man. 
There's no need to panic and, 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 and find yourself in despair. God is at work in our lives. God even brings evil from good. Paul believed this. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul said there was a thorn in my flesh. I prayed that God would, re- would remove it, but God didn't remove it. And Paul understood that it, was, it had that sanctifying effect in his life. Uh, a couple of months ago now, we got a phone call that uh, Beverly Rogers uh, was in the hospital. I went up to see Beverly and Bill, and uh, Beverly had suffered a, a stroke. And this caught the Rogers by surprise. Beverly, a fairly healthy lady, and um, I, I prayed with uh, the Rogers that afternoon, and um, Beverly was still suffering those immediate consequences from the stroke, and she was, I think, a little bit uncomfortable. She couldn't talk to me as well as she wanted to, and so. But we prayed, and, and Bill took me out in the hallway, and we stood against the wall there, and Bill looked me in the eyes, and with uh, he, you know, his eyes were full of tears, and. and Bill said to me that afternoon, he said, everything's going to be okay. God is good. Bill was telling me, you know, she may suffer long-term consequences from this stroke, but everything's going to be okay because he believed this. God had not abandoned the Rogers. I believe, I believe that's what Bill was expressing to me that day. He was confident in God's sovereign care for their family, for his wife. Not long after that, uh, one day I was checking my email and I got this email. And some of you may have gotten the same email from Beverly. I don't think it just came to me. But when I know that people have been suffering and they, and they want to share something, some, some way they've grown out of the suffering, I usually pay attention. And I, Beverly had sent this attachment on email. And so I read the attachment. And it was a story that she was sharing, she found, about a man who, who found himself uh, shipwrecked on an island. Uh, this man was all alone. He, all he had on this island was he found himself by himself with just a few simple belongings. And he realized after some time that there was probably no hope of rescue. And so this man, uh, realizing he had to make the best of a situation, went out and began to scavenge for things to, to sustain him. And over a period of days and weeks, he had finally built a house, a hut that would keep him warm and dry out of the weather. He had found ample food to sustain him, a source of water apparently. And he began, he began to uh, grab hold of some hope that even if I'm left here alone, maybe I'll make it. I can survive because I've, I've got ample things. And his life began to center around his hut. The simple things of life began to become more important to this guy. And one day he was out scavenging for food and on his way back, topping the hill, and he saw on the next hill a plume of smoke rising. He dropped everything he had, and he ran to his hut, topped the hill, and he saw that his hut was consumed with fire. Everything he had worked for in the past weeks was consumed. The story goes that the man ran down to the hut, to the beach there, and fell on his face, and he cried out to God in desperation. Why, God, after all of this, why did you take it all away? I don't understand. And exhaustion, the guy falls asleep. and He sleeps through the night on the beach. And the next morning, he's awakened by the sound of an approaching ship. And in a little while, a craft comes to the shore with people to rescue him. And the first question he asks to his rescuers were, How did you know I was here? How did you know? And they said, We saw your smoke signal the day before. Now the whole point of that story and what... 
what Beverly was learning from this, and she had learned this in a real life experience, that God is at work. He never abandoned us. And even when we don't understand how He's working, He is still at work in our lives. Now, that's not the end of their story. While Beverly was sick, in the process of this stroke, she had met this doctor that they, they came to really have high regards for. And Bill would go with Beverly to the doctor to visit him. And on one of those visits, this doctor, who Bill had gotten to know and like, the doctor suggested to Bill, maybe you ought to come in for a checkup. And now Bill's like most men, kind of averse to those physical exams. Everything's okay, we just put it off. And Bill hadn't had a physical exam in a long time. This is Beverly's testimony. Well, so with that doctor's encouragement and and, uh, Beverly's pressure on Bill he makes an appointment, and sometime later, he goes back to the doctor for this checkup. Guess what? In the checkup, this routine checkup, this doctor finds a malignant cancerous tumor in Bill. Now, the story, as the story goes, a few weeks ago, Bill went in for surgery, and they removed the tumor, and he's now taking uh, chemotherapy for this tumor. But the news is good. We got it all. We don't think you'll ever have a problem, but just for safety, just for some you know, safety and backup, we're going to give you some chemotherapy. Now, guys, you, you, you see where I'm going with this? Bev, this is Beverly's comment to me. You know, could it be that in God's providence, in His work in my life, I had a minor stroke, so my husband would end up at this same doctor, and this doctor would find cancer that, if left untreated, was malignant would spread, spread through his body and ravage it. Guys, is God not good? Is he, is he not at work? Now, I know what some of you are going to say, but what about my daughter? Or what about my father? Or what about my husband that I lost to cancer, to the tumor? What about that? Well, I'm telling you, the story's not over. The end, we don't know the end, but we know that God is at work and, and God is good. We can rest in that. And in that... He will never be shaken. We have no fear. We can have no, no despair of bad news. Our hearts should be steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Now, one other thing about verse 8, about trials and testings. I want to make sure you understand this. Trials, guys, trials in our lives, testings have value for us. But in and of themselves, trials don't produce maturity. In our lives, not not in and of themselves. Uh, James teaches us that it's perseverance that brings maturity in our lives, not just the trials, but the persevering through the, through the trials. It's perseverance that produces maturity. Now, how are we able to persevere through these difficult trials? It's because we know that God is faithful. We we have lived long enough, and God has proven Himself to us. He will never abandon us. Verse 9 now. He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. Uh, To understand this text, here's what I had to do. I I had to look at this text through the eyes of a Hebrew who would be reading in the psalmist David. Now, the Hebrew guys would, would be, uh, when he read this metaphor that, that the psalmist David is using, he, he understood what he, where he was coming from because in their culture, their, their economy was an agricultural-based economy. And here's what he sees here, I think. He sees this principle of sowing and reaping. 
of sowing and reaping, of sowing and reaping. Now, he, he pictures himself out sowing his grain and then in the, in the coming months reaping the harvest. And he, uh, he, he connects with what the psalmist is teaching. And he knows here that the psalmist is saying that God himself, what God, what God is doing is sowing generously this grace to us. God is sowing grace among us. This generosity. God is compassionate. God is righteous. And He sows faithfully. And what are we reaping? What, does, what do we reap? What do we reap from God's faithful sowing? We reap righteousness. The fruits of righteousness. So in turn, what do we do? God is our example. The Father who is generous in His sowing. And we reap the benefits of the Father's faithfulness to us. We in turn go out into life and we sow. Now I don't think we ought to limit this to, although that in Psalm 112 there's been an analogy to, to the, the upright man who lends freely and, and we could make application of lending material possessions or lending money, but I think we'd make a mistake if we limit it to that. Because we are, we, in life what are we sowing as we live? We're sowing grace. And we're sowing uh, compassion. And we're sowing seeds of righteousness as we live out in, in the world, as we live in these fire stations, as we go to the marketplace, as we, as we go to, to, into our neighborhoods. We, we sow grace and generosity and compassion. What will we reap? Righteousness. The psalmist has us to look ahead and, and uh, get a glimpse of this heritage, this righteousness that we're going to see reap in, in centuries to come or in, in generations to come. Guys, who are, the, who are the needy in our lives? The psalmist uses this, the word in our text. Um, he scatters abroad his gifts to the poor. Who are the poor in our lives? Who are the poor that God has set under our feet? That God in his providence has, has exposed us to, given us ministry to? I'll tell you who the poor are, who the needy are. In my life, uh, the needy in my life, the needy would be Carla, my wife, who needs to see a husband so grace, and compassion, and righteousness. Uh, I have a son and daughter who are needy, and they need to see their father so grace, and compassion, and righteousness. I have a neighbor across the street I've mentioned already, Dwayne. Dwayne needs to see, somehow, Dwayne needs to see his neighbor so grace, and compassion, and generosity. And what we will reap will be righteousness. Let's look uh, as we... Let me close up here. I timed it just right tonight. Well, I like it when a plan comes together. Psalm 112, let's look now um, at uh, verse 10. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. There's one comment about this, guys. Um, The unrighteous man... The man who has bet everything on this life, that, that this is all there is, in the end, he will, be, he will be in torment because he will see truth, finally see truth. Currently he doesn't. At the present he doesn't. He's blinded, but eventually he will see truth. And it will embitter his soul. Now I want to go back as we close. I want to go back and look at um, verse 4. Because I told you uh, last week, I think it was, I was going to save that section to to, to show you the Christ-centered focus of this text. The first half of verse 4. 
Guys, all through Psalm 112, the gospel flows. It just permeates all of this, of this psalm. And I, the first time it really jumped out at me when I was studying this text is this first half of verse 4. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. Guys, in, in the Bible, darkness is often used as a metaphor for adversity. Even in adversity, light dawns for the upright. Uh, what is the ultimate adversity that, that mankind faces? Ultimately, our ultimate adversity is death, both physical and spiritual. Ultimately, that's, that's, what, we, that's what we're trying to overcome. Gail and Maya and I were having a conversation today about the advances of medicine, and I, would tell, I was telling her about a new, a new stint that we're waiting on the federal government, they're waiting on the federal government to approve this. It's a medicated stint. And they're saying that once we get to use this medicated stent, it, it may alleviate the majority of, of needs for open heart surgery. This medicated stent would do it. And we were just amazed by the, the, uh, the, the progress we're making in, in just the medical world. And yet, we can't conquer the ultimate adversity. We just can't conquer death. And Jesus warned us. He said, don't, don't fear the man who could just steal the body from you, but fear the man who can steal both body and soul. See, it's the physical and the spiritual. And that's the ultimate ad- adversity for us. And the psalmist has said, even in that adversity, light dawns for the upright. Now in Scripture, light is often a metaphor for salvation. So even in the ultimate adversity, salvation dawns for the upright. I, when I was reading this, I had to think, what, what, would, have, what would the Hebrew have thought of? What, what Bible story, what would they think of when they, when they read these words the psalmist would write? Light dawns for the upright. Now, I don't know, guys. Maybe this is a little far-fetched. But could, could it have been possible that the Hebrew may have looked back, the, the, the Israelite may have looked back on their past history and they remembered the stories of their fathers from days of old and they remembered the Egyptian bondage when their, their forefathers were under the, the bondage of the Egyptians and suffering under that bondage. And they remembered that story in the book of Moses and find it in Exodus, Exodus 10. Remember that story? You remember the ten plagues of Egypt? Remember the plagues? Can you name some of the plagues? Anybody? Frog. The frog, yeah. Locusts and blood. And the ninth plague. Remember the ninth plague? Darkness. The plague of darkness. Exodus 10. The plague of darkness. The text says that on, on this, during this plague that darkness fell over Egypt for three days. Now there's something interesting in Exodus 10 and I, I found... The text says that it was a darkness that could be felt. In all the Egyptian households, darkness fell over the Egyptian households for three days. It says that it was a darkness that could be felt. I don't think it meant that you could cut it with a knife. I think it was the dark night of the soul. Um, these people realized they were, they were oppressed by this darkness. And they didn't know when it would end. The dark night of the soul. In later centuries, the early church fathers coined a, a phrase in Latin that, that goes like this. It was the Latin phrase, sat lucis intus. And it was interpreted, it means in English, there is light enough within. You know, where the, you know what they're alluding to? 
Exodus 10. Because in that text where it says that darkness passed over all the Egyptian households, the text says that in all the Israelite houses there was light enough within. You, you get the contrast there? Darkness and despair in the Egyptian households and yet, and yet in the, the, the Israelite house there was light. Light. Salvation was coming. Salvation had come to the Hebrew house. Remember the tenth plague? The tenth one, there was another dark night in Egypt. The tenth plague was the plague of the firstborn. And on that night, the death angel passed through all of Egypt and the firstborn of all the Egyptian household. And the text says, even the firstborn of the, of the, 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 the animals, the flocks, the herds, even those firstborn were, were killed by the death angel that night. But what was happening in the Hebrew house? They were spared. They pa- the death angel passed over the Hebrew house. Now on that night, a, a great wail, a great cry rose up from the very loins of Egypt. And I can, I can only imagine tonight, in, in the Egypt, Egyptian household, as the, the children would cover their ears, tormented by the cries of their mothers who had lost a child. Cries were rising up all over Egypt. But in the Hebrew house, contrast with, in the Hebrew house, light and peace. By the way, there's something else interesting in the text there. You find it in Exodus 10. You know what it says? In the Hebrew house, in the Hebrew neighborhoods, not even a dog could be heard barking. And you know things are pretty peaceful when the dogs are sleeping. Peace. Peace. Now guys, even in adversity, light dawn, salvation comes to the upright. Now I ask you, and I close with this, with this question. What's the difference? What was the difference between the Egyptian house and the Hebrew house? What's the difference? Grace. Sovereign grace. Nothing but grace. The only way you could explain it is the sovereign grace of God. God had raised up a people. He had chosen a people. And God's covenant to, to, to us, you will be my people. You're mine. You're my people, and I will be your God. Grace. It's all through this. All through Psalm 112. We can rejoice in God's sovereign grace. Let's pray. Father, why, you, uh, why you've chosen us to be your people, it's just hard to fathom. We are humbled tonight by your grace because in reality, we are just as guilty as, as uh, the pagan uh, on the streets of Memphis tonight, the, the lost man on the streets of Memphis, we're just as guilty, we were just as undone, just as lost. The only way we can explain it 